Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of Emma and Rebecca Talk IP, a series where we take a look at something that has caught our attention in the world of intellectual property and try to unravel what's really going on. I'm Emma Isles. And I'm Rebecca Gay. On this week's episode, which will be the last for the year, we're adding a bit of glitz and glamour, and we're going to be joined by some of the incredible members of the HSF IP team. The team is here to help us unpack the year that was and share some thoughts on what 2022 might bring in the wonderful world of IP. And we are very excited to have such special guests with us. Speaking of which, our first guest today is the lovely Sue Gilchrist, partner and head of Intellectual Property Australia. Welcome, Sue. Now, Sue, the legal profession, like many others, has undergone quite a transformation in the last couple of years. How do you think the role of an IP lawyer is going to evolve in a post-COVID world? Thanks, Emma, and thanks, Rebecca, and congratulations on your podcast series this year. It's been terrific. Um, So, in a post-COVID world, I think the critical importance of innovations is going to be even clearer. We'll see this particularly in the pharma space, and vaccines is a great example, and in the high-tech sector in terms of ensuring the completely reliable connectedness of people. What does this mean for the role of the IP lawyer? I think IP lawyers need to keep themselves informed about developments in tech, in their client sectors and in their clients' businesses, and also keep informed about developments not just in our court here in Australia, but in other jurisdictions. So as the value of IP is increasingly recognised, so the protection and enforcement of IP will become even hotter in the coming year and beyond. So one thing I think is really clear We IP lawyers better make sure we get a really good rest over this holiday season. Excellent advice, Sue. Um, While we're making predictions, um, what are your thoughts on some of the IP trends we might see coming into 2022? Yeah, so I expect we'll see the continued use of virtual hearings in IP cases in 2022 and beyond. Even if the federal court, which hears most IP cases here for us, Um, does return to in-person hearings. The courts told us they will keep enabling remote access. That's really good news because we've seen two big advantages of virtual hearings, particularly for our many international clients. First, they have really welcomed the greater access to their cases. They could join hearings on Teams or other virtual platforms and see the live action in their own cases for themselves. Second, this has opened up a more efficient and cost-effective option for enabling overseas experts, where that's appropriate, to come and give their evidence in our court without having to make their way all the way to Australia. And for us lawyers, that's removed a bit of stress associated with uh, sometimes actually getting expert witnesses at the time that they're well and able to travel to Australia. Thanks, Sue. The change in access to our courts has certainly been a significant one. And beyond the virtues of the virtual court, Sean McVicker, partner in the Melbourne office, also has some thoughts on major upcoming IP trends. Hi, thanks, Emma. Uh, I think what we may well see over the next year or so is that IP courts and particularly patent courts will start to entertain alternative processes and procedures uh, and be much more ready to try to streamline proceedings and get to the heart of the matters much more quickly. I think we're going to see them do things like entertain preliminary questions of law or preliminary questions of construction. Uh, I think this is likely to be driven by the increasing workloads of the courts. 
uh, a desire for greater international harmonisation and the taking of lessons from other jurisdictions. I also think it's going to be a factor of generational change at both the IP judge and the practitioner level. It really will be interesting just to see what changes do take place, what shape they are in, how, and how quickly they're all picked up. So thanks for those insights, Sean. Uh, next up, we have Steve Wong, Senior Associate from the Sydney office. Steve, despite the various challenges arising these last two years um, as a result of the pandemic, was there any activity in a particular area that you thought was particularly surprising? I was quite surprised by the rise of NFTs or non-fungible tokens. For many years, traditional models of IP ownership and enforcement have been breaking down with the rise of digital technology due to the ease of reproduction and the prevalence of centralised content sharing platforms. NFTs really arose in this landscape and we're seeing them being used as a way to reintroduce scarcity in a digital environment, which has implications for artists and brands and how we value IP generally. Thanks, Steve. I don't think I'd even heard of an NFT this time last year. Uh, The digital economy is certainly moving with some incredible pace. So now we're joined by Ashley Carlstein and Aaron Haywood, who are both senior associates from the Sydney office, who are going to compete for the best judicial comment of the year. Ash, what do you reckon? Well, mine's a bit of self-congratulation for the team. Sometimes it's the little things. We ran an urgent interlocutory injunction application for Goodman Fielder earlier this year, and we know the courts don't award confidentiality orders lightly, but after reviewing our proposal, Justice Raries commented, now I've had a look at what you want in the confidentiality order, and I say it's an unusual pleasure to have a properly drafted order, which I was quite chuffed with. And my favourite was a comment from Lord Justice Burse saying, this is an object lesson in the risks of advocacy being distracted by glamour in the appeal from the UK Thala and Dabas litigation. I like that one because if you believe the Dabas litigation team who went on a bit of a roadshow discussing the litigation, their lawsuit was a turning point in the recognition of AI-assisted inventions in the patent space. But in reality, as Lord Justice Burse explained, the decision really only dealt with the slightly less interesting question of how the patent office should process patent applications. As a lesson to future litigants, it also perhaps illustrates that the English and I'd probably add Australian courts do tend to get perhaps a little bit irritated when parties decide to advance hyperbole and headline over more logical and sedate exposition of the actual legal issues to be determined. Very true, Aaron. And a competition amongst disputes lawyers. Who would have ever thought we'd engage in such a thing? (laughs) What do you think, Rebecca? A tie? I think it's got to be. I think so. But speaking of the Dabas decision, Ash, um, do you have some thoughts on the implications of that particular decision for Australia? Yes, the Australian decision could have quite a few implications. So first, it's a contribution to a broader global debate about AI. What is it? Who owns and controls it? And how do we incorporate AI into existing legal frameworks like the patent system? So an immediate impact is to focus the minds of IP lawyers more on this space. But for patent law specifically, at least pending appeal, the immediate main impact is some uncertainty, and I'd expect more test cases or test applications to be filed. And then if upheld, the patent office and the courts will need to grapple with some potentially tricky implications for at least entitlement and inventive step. So does entitlement flow only to the person who both owns and controls the AI system and possesses the output? 
or could it flow to each of the source code owner, machine owner, trainer or operator, if not the first interpreter of results or someone else? And then more broadly, what does that mean for inventive step assessments? So as Justice Beach flagged in his honest judgment, will a skilled person now be taken to be a person assisted by AI? The practicalities in dealing with that decision will certainly keep us lawyers in the IP space busy for a while to come. Thanks, Ash. And our very last guest today is Tess Mirendorf, Senior Associate in the IP commercial team from our Sydney office. Tess, tell us about one area of IP law which you thought saw the most reform this year. Hi, Emma. Hi, Beck. One area that did see some change this year, I think, is in registered designs. So the Designs Amendment Advisory Council on Intellectual Property Response Act received royal assent on the 10th of September this year, with the majority of amendments slated to commence on the 10th of March 2022. One of the key changes in that Act was to introduce a 12-month grace period, which allows designers to file applications up to 12 months after their first use or publication without affecting the validity. Previously, any public use or disclosure would disentitle the applicant from obtaining registered protection of that design. This change brings Australian design law into line with the grace periods for patents in Australia. And from my perspective, it's a useful change because it means designers can now test their designs in the market and get a sense of which ones are likely to be commercially successful before incurring costs of actually filing and obtaining registered design protection. However, as a kind of corollary to the grace period, the Act also introduces a prior use infringement defence, which allows anyone who starts using a comparable design after disclosure, but before a design application has been filed, to rely on that defence. And that defence continues even after the original design ultimately becomes registered. So this means that while the grace period is a helpful way for designers to test the market, it's still important for them to file early so that they can stop third parties from using similar products. That's a really interesting development, Tess, although you would think they could come up with a name for their act that was slightly more catchy. Yes, definitely. Um, (laughs) um, And for our last question, uh, we're going to come full circle and end where we started, which is to ask you, how do you think the role of an IP lawyer will evolve in a post-COVID world? It's a pretty exciting time, but one thing we've been hearing pretty consistently is that COVID has accelerated existing trends and whether that's towards digitisation, remote working or increasing reliance on data sets and machine learning to drive new commercial outcomes. We like to think as commercial IP lawyers that we kind of walk alongside our clients on those journeys and help them find ways to create and articulate value in their new developments and think creatively about those new technologies. As Steve said, there's been some fascinating stuff in the NFT space, probably capitalising a little on the surge of interest in crypto in 2021, which has the potential to transform the way we think about connecting value to copyright on the internet, for example. And of course, the pharma space is going gangbusters as people look to explore new opportunities, whether that's within their own organisations or through partnerships across industry. So it's going to be a fun 2022. We certainly hope so. Thanks very much, Tess. Uh, And that wraps up 2021 for Emma and Rebecca Talk IP. So until next year. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. 
For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.